Welcome to Embargoed, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trades for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me today is Laura Deegan, the co-host and my friend and colleague. Um, Welcome, Laura. Glad to be back here today and glad to be talking about a very exciting topic. Good to have you back. Good to have you back. exciting topic it is so today we were going to review 2023 one of the worst years in the history of the world as far as i'm concerned but we'll but 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 we're going to review it solely we're not going to review it on the merits we're going to review it solely from a u.s sanction standpoint um talk about the good bad and the ugly in u.s sanctions but before we get started uh, this is our first podcast of 2024, thank goodness. Um, So that's why we're doing year in review. As uh, listeners may have noticed, we have taken a a little time off, but I think we're about to start a regular schedule of podcasting much more frequent. So, um, you know, we wanted to put the old behind us, uh, wrap it up today, and then we'll move on to to 2024 topics. There should be a a lot of them. and before we get started, you know, one other potential segment that I wanted to talk about uh, at the beginning that we haven't done in the past, but I think it's worth highlighting. Um, you and I are going to be traveling all over the world with some speaking engagements. And so I thought we would put a few of these on the calendar now for anybody who, who might be able to reach out and, and see us in person. Yeah, so really exciting. We're going to be heading off to Turkey next week to talk at uh, the Defend Tech Symposium with um, the Herjam Law Firm there to talk to a bunch of defense contractors about sanctions, export controls, um, and really everything they should know from from a U.S. perspective. Um, So really excited uh, to have that coming up. Yeah, looking forward to going to Turkey. And, um, you know, we hit the last episode of 2023, I think was the ITAR episode. We're going to be talking a bit uh, to about the ITAR with defense contractors in Turkey. I know that you're going to be talking about sanctions with them, and I'm sure we'll have meet some very interesting people, hopefully have some good food. I've never been to Ankara before. Um, Neither and- have I. I've never been to Turkey, so I'm, I'm super excited and, and, you know, super glad to be meeting all different types of folks. Great. And um, and at the end of this month, um, I am speaking on another year in review panel for the ABA. Very excited about that. Trevor Schmidt from Arnold and Porter is kind of running that show, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about some of the same things we're going to talk about today. I'm focused mostly on Russia, but um, you know, if folks are in Washington and have time to go see the ABA year in review presentation, it's really a, a great panel. Yeah, it's shaping up to be a great one. So um, everyone should look out for that. And then one final thing on the agenda before we get started, um, you know, so BIS update conference, export controls conference is coming up. Uh, you know, it's a huge conference in Washington, D.C. Lots of people come in from out of town. It's mostly focused on the EAR, but as we know, there's also a sanctions component and also an ITAR component. And so if folks are in town, I, I think Miller and Chevalier is going to have an event in connection with the um, with, with the update conference. Uh, we may be working with uh, Jacobson, Burton and Kelly and Beth Pride and some others. So so come on down to, to Miller and Chevalier if you're in town for the update conference. Um, just yeah. to put that out there. To entice people, we do have a really great rooftop. 
<laughs> yes. Very nice rooftop. Good location. Um, we can't promise good weather since it's late March in Washington, but but you never know. Um, so so hopefully that'll be a good event. And with that, and and with some thanks to the the people in in our group, our trade group, including Annie Cho and Manny Levitt, who really helped us pull together the year in review. Why don't we get started by talking about what's probably going to be the longest topic today, and that's going to be the developments in U.S. sanctions against Russia in 2023. And I'll, I'll hand that over to you to kick off, and I'll probably um, interrupt you rudely at some point while you're talking. <laughs> oh, Tim, where should we start on Russia. Um, you know, in, in some sense, uh, looking back at the start of 2023 and where we are now, um, it's just sort of incredible um, how much has changed in the Russia program since uh, January 2023. I think we, we saw the year start off with um, the issuance of the price caps, um, the one related to uh, petroleum in February 2023. We saw OFAC take us through um, a bunch of designations related to um, actors who were diverting goods to Russia's battlefield. And I think we ended the year with a lovely gift from OFAC of um, a new secondary sanctions authority targeting uh, certain financial, uh, foreign financial institutions, which we'll talk about a little bit. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, so I, I was just going to jump in and say, you know, I think that one of the things that um, has surprised me the most about developments over the, the course of the past year, I guess two of the things. One is the, the way that the allies still are united on sanctions policy and the energy with which the EU and the UK are acting. Two, and it's kind of related, this has gone through the uh, adoption in the U.S. of a of pretty um, aggressive secondary sanctions, which, you know, I think when this program started, it seemed like the Biden administration had gone out of its way to disclaim any reliance on secondary sanctions because they are, have been traditionally so unpopular with our allies in, in Europe. And now... Two years in, you've got this coalition, and and the Biden administration is is adopting a very you know strict secondary sanctions. It's limited to particular areas of concern, but it's still you know this significant transaction language that we're used to in some of the other programs, and not a peep in terms of controversy or any anything else. And I think in in many ways, um, it, it's kind of shows what can happen when you unite everyone and kind of move forward as opposed to just acting unilaterally. So so that's kind of the big picture thoughts that I have to step back. But with that, I mean, why don't we talk about some of the the new directives, some of the, the sectoral determinations, because I know 14024 gave the Treasury Department, OFAC, a lot of discretion to figure out which Russian sectors needed to be targeted. And at the start of 2023, it seemed like there were already a lot of sectors that had been targeted, but uh, at the end of 2023, there were a lot more. 
Yeah, so, I mean, you, you already had uh, targeted sectors like accounting um, and service prohibitions related to providing uh, Russian persons accounting, trust, uh, and corporate formation services. But 2023 brought us um, additional sectors uh, where persons could be targeted under and service prohibitions. So uh, you also had architecture, engineering, manufacturing, construction, transportation. Um, and those are all key sectors, you know, and if you start to think about it and you take together the, the sectors that have already been targeted with sanctions and now these new sectors, you kind of are left to think, well, well, what's really left? Um, is there much left? And I would be curious for, for your view on whether you think, you know, we could expect to see more of this in 2024. Well, I mean, the big the big elephant in the room, and I, we're going to move to it next because because OFAC and the U.S. and the allies have targeted this sector too, but not in the same way, and that's energy, right? So, so the other sectors are targeted, and there are lots of prohibitions on U.S. persons services, and therefore operating in those particular sectors, you can get designated. So wide sanctions authority there. In the energy sector, there there isn't the same sort of designation, but there are are obviously the price caps. And so why don't we talk a little, and so not to avoid the question, but I don't know of any other sectors that really could be targeted other than energy that are important to the Russian economy. And I think in some ways, partly because of controversy with the allies, partly because you know one of OFAC's signature moves is to say, hey, we're going to take this gradually and we always want to leave room to increase. And so energy hasn't been targeted in the same way, but it has now been targeted, including with enforcement. So why don't you talk a little bit about how the price cap evolved over the course of 2023? Yeah, and, and right before I get there, I will say, you know, it, it's really interesting that in messaging pieces this year, OFAC has come out and it has made some designations in the energy sector, but really of what it said is it's it's targeting future energy production. And I think that's important and that's, you know, uh, somewhat it seems to be a thought thoughtful approach um, because I think with a lot of the messaging that's come out on the price cap, um, the price cap coalition, you know, has said time and time before that it's not trying to necessar necessarily unduly disrupt um, energy markets. So sometimes the um, the focus on uh, future energy production and curbing future energy revenue, um, you know, that, that seems to be an approach uh, that's been taken by OFAC and targeting. But in terms of the price cap, I mean, at the end of last year, uh, I think in October 2023 was when we saw the first uh, designations um, um, under the price cap for uh, actors, uh, oil traders, vessels um, who were trading in product above the caps. And that was really interesting because I think for a while, nobody was sure if the price cap had any teeth. And then starting October, November, December, January of this year, we see even more designations under the price cap. Um, so I really think now there, there's a huge enforcement focus on it, a huge targeting focus. Um, we've also seen updated price cap uh, guidance, which uh, makes the attestation process a bit stricter where um, producers or, or those involved in the shipment of oil have to get attestations every time the oil is so-called lifted. Um, so you really see the, the U.S. government and the price cap coalition trying to um, show that 
the price cup has uh, force. Yeah, and I think, you know, the energy sector is interesting because, as you pointed out, there's a target on future production, so there's been some designations there. There's the price cap. So we've got the price cap, and that appears to be getting more and more teeth. I think OFAC has gone back over the course of the year and written a compliance guide that kind of starts to tell people what some of the, you know, we raised, I think, about a year ago, we raised some of the questions. I I think we did a podcast with Sue Millar um, from over in the UK at Stevenson Harwood and talked about kind of some of the questions as the price cap was coming out. OFAC has answered those questions and is starting enforcement, so the price cap is kind of focused focusing on current production, but not stopping it, but trying to make sure that it complies with the price cap. And then there is this one other prohibition that was tweaked over the course of 2023, the 14.068, which is the executive order that deals with a lot of import restrictions, among other things, and was the one that was used to uh, for, the, for the US to impose an import ban on Russian oil, is in the process of being tweaked as well in a way that has not yet had significant consequences with respect to the energy sector, but easily could, and it may be, in my view, apart from a apart from an embargo on Russian oil, the biggest step that could be taken that hasn't been taken, and that is the substantial transformation doctrine. Now, what what I found interesting is that the tweaks to 14068 just dealt with fish, and so substantial transformation of Russian fish is is now you know, not going to be an excuse if you're, if you're importing Russian fish, even if it's substantially transformed into the United States, you've now run afoul of 14068. I, I haven't gone back and looked at the math or at the, the stats. I'm not sure how big a change that is. But if you were to take that principle and apply it to Russian oil, so Russian oil that is shipped out of Russia to, say, India or China and transformed into diesel or anywhere else where it might be transformed into diesel fuel and then shipped out around the rest of the world, currently that it does not run afoul of the import prohibition on Russian oil. So if a if Russian oil is sent to another country and substantially transformed, it can still be imported into the United States. If you were to apply that uh, principle to Russian oil that starts Russian oil, one, it would be a big change. Two, it would be very difficult to enforce because you'd have to trace the origin of any oil beyond the substantial transformation point. But that is out there. And this change to Executive Order 14068 that took place uh, at the beginning of, at the end of 2023, so in December, uh, really did potentially change the equation, although nothing has happened yet. It just gave OFAC the power to do that. Yeah, I mean, that that's a really interesting question. And I think it, you know, it would also relate to whether uh, U.S. allies could further reduce their dependence um, on Russian oil? And could they ever also get to a place where, you know, I know there's been some some EU bans on, on imports of Russian oil, but I still think that some countries, um, EU countries have exceptions or what's known as derogations, where they still can accept Russian oil. And so the reason why some of those are given, I think, you know, relates to the fact um, that 
a lot of countries still were and are dependent on Russian oil. So it, it'll be interesting to see if, you know, OFAC uses that sort of ex expanded authority under EO14068 to target oil or to target other uh, commodities, which it hasn't. I mean, I think for, for fish, it's really interesting because you only have certain types of fish. You have pollock, cod, salmon. And what's really interesting about that is, um, you know, you think how much revenue, to your point, how much revenue uh, is Russia really getting from those products? And I think part of it is, is that prohibition is a test for even U.S., the U.S. government, because are they able to actually trace whether now these products have been substantially transformed and, and are still able to enter the U.S.? So depending on what that looks like and, and how, how you know, enforcement of that type of uh, restriction uh, comes through, I think we could see it apply to other products. And, and we've just seen it come out also in relation to Russian diamonds, uh, which is which is also um, uh, being done in coordination with the G7. Yeah, I mean, and that that is kind of a, you know, it, it may be, you know, you asked before where the next steps, I'm not sure they're sectoral, they may be product by product. And I think 14068 um, gives the US and then the EU has adopted similar rules, although again, it's country by country as to where the particular import prohibition applies, I think mostly because of the, the worry, especially when this was adopted back kind of at the beginning of the war in Ukraine, that certain countries, and I think Germany most prominent among them, would be, they'd have their economy significantly disrupted if they were to just go cold turkey and stop importing Russian oil altogether. And so, so I think that that, that executive order, which gives now gives OFAC the power to go, well, it has already, but it is now being amped up to include not just products, but also potentially doing away with the doctrine of substantial transformation is one where the products, as opposed to the sectors, might be the way that the, the sanctions evolve over the course of the, the coming year, because uh, it's just hard to think of sectors that are important to the Russian economy that you could target at this point, because so many of the sectors have been targeted by now. Yeah, and and you know something else to to think about is um, whether uh, you still want certain products going into Russia, and so I think certain guidance OFAC has put out, even guidance today as it relates to um, Yemen, uh, the messaging has been on ensuring that food security. Um, food is still um, accessible, that humanitarian related activities are still able to be performed. And to have all of that, um, you need to have some uh, business presence in Russia still. So what will be really interesting to me is to see if, you know, if the U.S. government does make it a bit harder to stay in Russia uh, next year, whether we'll start to see other businesses pull out or not. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 we've talked about this on other podcasts, but but it has become in some ways more of a mess to pull out from Russia over the course of the last year or two because of these exit taxes and the fact that you need an OFAC license to pay the exit tax. And the exit tax changes and it goes up, and and so it is created an impediment to leaving. And so the question now is is if OFAC is going to encourage companies to leave, which they might, um, how does that affect not only what the requirements are, but also then 
what happens on the ground with respect to food and medicine and those sorts of things that it's in many ways good to have a continued presence in these sanctioned countries because at least you can try and increase the flow of humanitarian goods. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's something I think U.S. regulators will continue to think about, um, you know, do authorizations which allow U.S. persons like General License 13 to remain in Russia, do, do those continue knowing right now that they are, they're still time limited and, and they just keep getting renewed? Um, so that, that's something definitely to keep an eye on for, for the next year. So why don't we, with that, pivot to something we've already talked about a little, and that is the, the new secondary sanctions that have gone into effect against Russia. Again, not high profile and not seemingly a lot of controversy. I, I think that's that in and of itself is interesting. But the other thing that I think is interesting that I, I'd like to talk about is the fact that they are very targeted. So often secondary sanctions in the past have gone after sectors. But this these secondary sanctions seem to be more targeted towards a particular type of conduct that is, you know, out, that is counter to U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, these are super interesting because, um, you know, the the authority uses similar language as other secondary sanctions programs and that, you know, we talked about if an, a foreign financial institution engages in a significant transaction. But the transaction itself um, either has to relate to supporting uh, a blocked person who is engaged in certain um, military-related activity in Russia or uh, related to certain um, goods, certain military or dual-use goods, um, that are being sent to Russia for use in its battlefield. And actually, as part of this authority, OFAC also put out a, a determination which listed the goods that could essentially, if, if, if an FFI you know, supports a transaction involving, could get them sanctioned, which is super interesting. And, um, you know, especially in light of the fact that we saw BIS issue um, a high priority list of, of items it was looking at um, going to Russia. And there's just been a lot of discussion about really how companies use this these lists uh, to try to comply with, with sanctions so that they themselves don't get in trouble. Yeah, and I think it also goes to a theme we've been talking about for couple years now, which is the convergence of export controls and sanctions, right? Because if you're a bank, a foreign financial institution, you've got a compliance department and your compliance department has probably gotten quite good at um, figuring out with respect to U.S. sanctions, will we screen? So we make sure that we're complying with the SDN list. And even in even potentially figuring out, okay, is this a sanctioned sector of the of the sanctioned country's economy? Do, and and is this a significant transaction within that sector? But now you've got to kind of look much more closely at the transaction itself because just finding the sector doesn't tell you the correct answer. You've got to look at the products and you've got to look at various other factors with respect to the transaction that look a lot more like export controls than they do like sanctions. 
Yeah, and you know, a lot of these these banks we've talked to about this um, often don't get the underlying activity uh, for transactions that they're processing, and so um, they they really have to think of ways to be able to implement a control, whether it's doing investigations or lookbacks on transactions, or really looking at their own customers to say, well, is there a risk that my customer uh, could be exporting this type of product uh, to Russia. And so um, you have a lot of, especially financial institutions, not just foreign financial institutions, but U.S. financial institutions looking at their, you know, correspondent bank clients to see, well, where does my risk lie with this new authority? And so it'll be really interesting to me to see uh, what happens in the next few months if we see OFAC uh, become more active in using this new authority. All right, so so with secondary sanctions, anything else to talk about in 2023 with respect to Russia, just on the big picture level? No, I mean, you know, I think uh, we're all anxiously awaiting to see what happens in the next few weeks, whether we will have a so-called anniversary tranche um, and whether also, as you've seen, might have seen in today's news um, with the death of uh, Navalny, whether we will see any additional uh, sanctions on Russia that specifically relate to that issue, which I think is still developing. Right. It's definitely still developing from our perspective. And I think the timing is such that it may be hard to tease out which ones are which new sanctions are related to Navalny and which new sanctions are related to the two year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, which is coming up in about a week. And so so but I, I definitely think the next time we talk, which will be after that date, at least we talk by recording. Um, uh, we'll have something to talk about on the podcast with respect to the new sanctions that come in at the end of February of 2024, and we maybe can tease out, you know, what they're related to and what they're, what sorts of behavior they're designed to deter. Yeah, definitely. Well, why don't we move on then from from Russia and and these two topics might be topics to talk about together, and and the reason being that they're related to oil. So so you know we talked. A, about the price caps in Russia. And Iran and Venezuela both have sanctioned oil sectors as well. Iran's is heavily sanctioned, probably the most sanctioned sector of any sector in any country in the world from the US perspective. Venezuela's state-owned oil company was on is on the SDN list, um, although there was a there was a loosening of the sanctions because of a general license that was put into place about four or five months ago. Um, but both countries you know, rely heavily on oil. They have heavily sanctioned oil sectors, and there have been a lot of developments over the course of 2023 in both countries. I kind of wanted to put them together in part because of the last topic. You know, at some point, putting sanctions on three very large oil producers becomes creates difficulties of its own, which I think is at least related in part to the to the events in Venezuela. So why don't we start with Iran and then move on to Venezuela? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think from the perspective of Iran sanctions, the designations that have occurred in 2023, particularly as related to Iran's oil sector, for which, you know, 
obviously secondary sanctions apply, um, th there have been several. Um, and I think we can expect to see that pace continue this year. Um, also, I think we can expect to see the pace of sanctions on Iran continue depending on what happens um, in regards to uh, further attacks in the Middle East. Um, besides the oil front, we've also seen designations occur after the October 7th uh, attack or, between Israel and Hamas, um, where we've seen designations of certain Iranian actors uh, who had been apparently funding uh, Hamas or um, its efforts. So I think, you know, we've seen a steady pace of it. Um, I think at this point in 2023, we're far removed from the days of thinking that we'll re-enter the JCPOA. Uh, we've been quite Things have been pretty quiet on that front in the past year, whereas at first, I th in the beginning of this administration, I think there was some, you know, chatter of perhaps getting back into the JCPOA. And right now, I, I just don't personally see that happening. I don't know if you have a view on that. No, I, I think that that ship has sailed. Uh, so, for lack of a, <laughs> to mix a bunch of metaphors, but but basically. I agree at the beginning of the Biden administration, I mean, President Biden ran on the platform that he was going to get back into the JCPOA because it was working and it was working. But the reason I think things have changed so much is in part because the negotiations took a long time. Um, they didn't quite move where people thought they would move. And, and, and look, you can blame a lot of things on Iran and lots of people correctly do. But the U.S. unilaterally withdrew from that deal. And so it was a hard negotiation because any party, including Iran, would understandably want to say, OK, I need some guarantees this time because I don't want to enter into a deal and have it be pulled out from under me in a couple of years, even if I'm holding up my end of the deal. So those negotiations were hard. I think then when the protests happened in Iran, um, that the Western views and the U.S. government views of Iran became much more mixed. And so the ability of the U.S. to negotiate that deal, given what was happening on the ground in Iran, became more difficult at that point. And then I think the events of October 7th and some of the fallout with that, with Iran's involvement in at least um, sponsoring some of the parties that are involved in the October 7th attacks and then sponsoring parties who are involved in attacks on the U.S. after October 7th has made the climate pretty much impossible for the U.S. to do any sort of direct deal with Iran that involves kind of lifting sanctions in this environment. So I think, to me, that ship has sailed um, probably as of the protests uh, back probably about a year and a half ago, maybe a little less than that. Um, but certainly after October 7th, I just don't think there's any chance that the U.S. is going to get back into anything like the JCPOA with Iran. I, I also think, and, and we talked about this years ago um, at the time of the 2020 election, the, the window for getting back into the JCPOA was kind of tight because there were deadlines that were fixed by year. And so a lot of those deadlines have now run. So to, to get back, there is no JCPOA per se to get back into because mm -hmm. I think we're coming up on some of the huge developments in the JCPOA. I mean, it was envisioned by 2025 that there would be a some sort of lifting of some of these sanctions by the EU and by even the U.S. 
and and that just that just is not going to happen on that time frame so if you were to get back into the negotiations you'd have to negotiate a whole new agreement because i think that one has now either become obsolete or is so close to becoming obsolete that there's nothing to get back into yeah and you know even if um the the same administration carried into uh, the next year. I think that um, getting back into the JCPOA is such a contentious bipartisan, uh, not not a not really an area where there's bipartisan support usually. That I'm just not sure that we're in the political climate for it, especially after the October seventh attacks. Um, but you know, I, I think what's interesting that that sort of come out with them and something we had chatted about a little bit was that we also got a new uh, sanctions program out of it um, related uh, to the West Bank. And we did see some sanctions under that new authority. I think a couple of them come out in relation to violence of the West Bank settlers. And that that was pretty interesting, but I'm not sure if, if you know, we'll see anything happen with that or that'll really just fizzle out um, because we really haven't seen much off the back of that. I know there were some discussions about a two-state solution at that time, but but there really hasn't been much talk of that in the coming uh, in the past few weeks. Yeah, I am convinced that that given where we are now, that the only type of Iran deal that would ever come about in the foreseeable future would involve a much larger attempt to address many of the issues that are driving the violence in the Middle East, and so. I don't think you could have a pure standalone Iran deal right now unless it's part of a deal that involves multiple countries and, and some some other issues that are more on the front burner now than the Iran-US relationship is. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, so let's turn to, to so, so just to wrap up with respect to Iran, I mean, what we're seeing with respect to Iran is very aggressive, continued aggressive throughout 2023, U.S. enforcement in terms of designations on the Iranian oil sector, seizures of Iranian um, oil on the high seas by the U.S. and in, in different countries, and then even criminal uh, prosecutions. None of this is particularly new, but I think the level of aggression in terms of the level of activity is higher than I remember seeing in other years, but kind of more of the same, but a lot more of the same. Yeah, and to me, it's, you know, just as a sort of a last point, it's really interesting um, the ways in which we're seeing sanctions evasion and diversion of goods occur, not just with, with Russia, but with Iran as well. And, you know, there's been several articles and pieces in the news which relate to uh, vessel spoofing. Um, and I really think in some of those cases where there have been designations of, of vessels engaged in that activity, that in some cases, the U.S. government has gotten smarter and more attuned uh, to a lot of the technology and tracking systems that other companies have, have been using uh, to, to find this activity. So the, the focus I really see from 2023 is, is really a lot on oil, a lot on shipping and maritime san related sanctions yep. evasion. Yep, very focused on that and, and probably will be for the foreseeable future. Um, and Speaking of oil, I mean, Venezuela has a lot of it and a state-owned entity, PDVSA, on the SDN list. Why don't you talk a little bit about 
what happened in 2023 with respect to, to Petavesa and kind of we'll, we'll get the story up till now, but I don't think we're at the end point of the story. Yeah, so my inaugural um, episode of Embargoed was to talk about um, the changes and some of the sanctions relief in the Venezuela sanctions program that came out in October of 2023, which was a series of, of a few general licenses providing some relief for certain sectors in Venezuela. Uh, one, as you said, related to the oil sector, one related to gold, one related to financial services. Um, and when those licenses came out in uh, October of last year, um, uh, government officials, uh, particularly in the State Department, had made very clear that the renewal of those authorizations would be dependent on the Venezuelan government uh, making significant advances in terms of um, election processes and having instituting fair election processes and allowing their opposition candidate to to run. Um, interestingly, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we saw OFAC actually issue an amended authorization, um, which now um, is really a wind down authorization related to Venezuelan gold company Minervin. Uh, beforehand, we had an authorization that allowed US persons to essentially engage in activity with Minervin, and now uh, OFAC has decided to pull back that authorization and offer a wind down instead. And part of that was in response to the fact that. Um, I, the Supreme Court in Venezuela was still not allowing the opposition candidate to run, and there really hadn't been much progress, it seemed, um, on that front. So, you know, I think that the question on everyone's mind, particularly those uh, U.S. and non-U.S. companies who were thinking of getting back into Venezuela is uh, what's going to happen with the rest of the authorizations, some of them that are set to expire in April of this year? Yeah, I, I think it was interesting. You know, at the time that the two GLs, GL43 for the gold sector and GL44 for PETAVESA came out, um, I, we spoke on the podcast. I think, um, you know, the thinking was that that given the benefits to the Venezuelan government, the Venezuelan government would probably be careful to try and preserve these general licenses going forward. That does not appear to have been the case so far. I, I now think in hindsight that part of the reason that OFAC issued two general licenses is so that they could speak through those general licenses as they are now. And I think the, you know, the gold license, while an important sector of Venezuelan Venezuela's economy is probably not as important as PDVSA and the oil sector. And so using General License 43 to send a message that this is not the sort of progress we envisioned and turning that General License from a, you can engage in all transactions for six months and this can be renewed at any point as General Licenses like that often are, was a signal that you know we're, we're going to watch, but we're going to presumptively keep that sector open. And now they've pulled back and said, "Okay, wind down by that particular date because it doesn't look like we're issuing another." Sends the message that they can do the same thing with General License 44, and, and it wasn't subtle. They they issued guidance at the same time they wound down General License 43, saying if things don't change, we're going to do the same thing with General License 44 and that that's going to not going to be renewed. They didn't, I don't recall them saying anything about whether they would issue a wind down at the end of General License 44, but 
it it will create chaos um, for those companies that have jumped back into that sector under the theory that this is likely to go on if that gets wound down. So it'll be interesting to see how Venezuela responds to that. It's been a little bit, and I haven't seen much of a change in tone or attitude coming out of Venezuela. So I think that anyone relying on General License 44 ought to do so with um, an eye towards the news and with a presumption that they may need to make some real decisions in the next couple of weeks about what they're going to be able to do in Venezuela with respect to the oil sector. Yeah, I think what you said about making a decision in the next couple of weeks is really relevant. Uh, you know, uh, this General License 44, it expires in April and we're already in mid-February. Um, if OFAC doesn't issue a longer term wind down, which it may not, then these companies who've already, you know, started contracts or other agreements with PDVSA, um, they really should take a look at those and see um, how they can quickly get out in the event that this license is just, it's not renewed and there is no wind down. Um, so that really should be the focus there. And then I think going forward uh, for companies who were thinking about getting back into Venezuela, um, I, I just don't know what a, a revocation of these licenses uh, says about that and whether it would be worth the risk again, knowing that the US government could just pull back relief at the drop of a hat um, if any types of negotiations with Venezuela go sour. Yeah, and so I think that's an issue to watch closely for 2024. I think we'll be watching closely. We'll probably speak again about this issue relatively soon because it is an issue on which companies placed a lot of reliance interests. I know that we were involved in talking with clients about these issues on a pretty extensive scale. I think that I, I quite frankly think the U.S. government adopted those general licenses with the idea that they would be renewed and with the hope that they would be renewed and really did not anticipate kind of the direction in which things have gone in Venezuela. Um, and, and from a rational behavior standpoint of the Maduro government, you, you do think that it does seem a little strange that they would take, take that route so quickly after after reopening those those sectors because to your point companies were thinking very hard about the the problem if this didn't happen the next time around it's going to take much longer for them to jump in i mean i think this time there were a lot of companies that made the call that you know, there's risk everywhere, and this is a big sector, and the first ones back in are probably going to do the best if this if this goes for the long term. The next time around, I don't think that that's going to be the decision-making process if this thing gets revoked, and then you have to wait for months or years for another change to the sanctions against PDVSA. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, it's really anyone's guess. I mean, obviously, the government of Venezuela could change their tune in the next few weeks, but absent any real change, I, I don't know that we'll see um, any continued authorizations. Um, it's really anyone's guess, but I think there was there was a hope um, that uh, having these licenses in place would affect uh, change and really show that sanctions are, are working. 
um, but it doesn't seem to really have gotten the message through. Um, and so I think, you know, for any companies looking at their portfolio and looking at emerging markets and when they were looking at Venezuela, you really have to take into account the, the future costs of, of getting in, but then also getting out um, in line with sanctions. Yep. Yep. And so we'll see what happens in 2024, but it's definitely something that is going, something is going to happen and it's going to be interesting. Yep. So with that, why don't we turn to our final topic, which is the developments over the course of 2023 in the virtual currency industry, because OFAC had three big enforcement actions, Binance, CoinList, and, and Poloniex, um, and then a couple other relevant develops, developments with respect to Tornado Cash. Yeah, so I think uh, you had a really good conversation on the podcast with uh, our own Leah Mushi at the firm on Tornado Cash, um, which was really enlightening and, and sort of about um, whether Tornado Cash was really uh, an entity you could place sanctions on, um, which which some in the VC space would argue it is not. Um, but then also Binance. Binance was huge. Binance is, um, I believe, at, at this point, one of the largest OFAC uh, enforcement actions um, at a $970 million penalty. Um, so that one, you know, I think it really, it really shook up the industry a little bit. And um, I think we've seen a trend this year, not, not just from an OFAC perspective, but really from a, an other, you know, other U.S. government agencies like the SEC really going and cracking down on certain behavior of uh, crypto exchanges and, and virtual currency service providers. And I think um, OFAC has really followed suit in that, except um, their focus has been designating those entities uh, that are obviously known to engage in malign activity. So Tornado cash in regards to um, North Korea, sanctions evasion, um, and then the enforcement actions really, uh, especially Binance or Poloniex, uh, Coinlist, were really targeting, um, in some sense, a lack of controls uh, or um, in, some, in some cases sort of a, a blind eye to the fact that there was a lack of sanctions-related controls. Yeah, I, I, I think conceptually, from the perspective of these in the services industry as well as potentially their customers the idea was that you go into crypto because there are no controls and i think from the us regulators perspective <laughs> that was a bad thing because because they'd spent years kind of training and educating the financial services industry generally that you you need to have controls to account for money laundering and sanctions and with the crypto industry kind of saying well why don't you bring your why don't you bring your resources over here because we don't have controls that that made it for a tempting target and and i, I mean i think you see by the size of the settlements how widespread the lack of controls were and 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 you start to think well maybe that was the point and so so now it can no longer be the point. And I think that was the message that the regulators were trying to send is, no, no, you can't take your money out of the rest of the financial system and put it over into Binance and, and basically opt out of all of these controls we've been setting up for 20 years. 
Yeah, it almost reminds me of the series of enforcement actions undertaken by OFAC in the early uh, 2010s against, you know, your large banks where you had a lot of the same issues of a lot of large banks who really didn't have um, at the time great AML and sanctions controls and then a period of education and very costly remediation for some of those banks where I do wonder if you will see that in crypto or it, it or if it's more so just an industry that will continue to struggle with how to implement sanctions controls. So give yeah. your thoughts. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I think it's going to be, it, it may take a while. I mean, what you saw in, in, in the parallel movement with the financial institutions is first, there were these big enforcement actions against U.S. financial institutions. But then I think the message went to, okay, well then, you know, if you want to evade sanctions, just go to France or just go to Germany. And, and so then you had to see kind of the migration to the big enforcement actions against a lot of the banks over in Europe and the UK, because they were basically, you know, at the C-suite level, making decisions to strip the names off of sanctioned countries off of US dollar transactions. And so the enforcement actions migrated overseas and those compliance, those compliance programs got built up. And so there wasn't really a place, at least within the US and allied countries in, in Europe and the UK, where you could go to do US dollar transactions with um, Iran or with uh, some of the other sanctioned countries. I mean, and, and Cuba were big among them at the time. Um, I think we'll probably see a similar development with respect to cryptocurrency. I, I'm guessing that these are not the last, these are the first kind of blow, but, but the cryptocurrency industry may be more difficult to wrangle in because it is at least partly a startup industry with fast growth that for completely separate reasons than just evasion, there is this difficulty in placing controls on an industry that's growing that quickly and and that involves some sort of um, anonymity as a legitimate factor. And so so I think there will be continue to be this struggle, but I think the message that was sent in these enforcement actions is like, this is not a place you can go to evade controls, but actually how that sinks in and how well the controls develop will be something to watch. Yeah, and and I think, you know, it started off when OFAC put out some guidance, I believe in 2021, which was the virtual currency guidance, which essentially says OFAC sanctions also apply to you cryptocurrency service providers. So it'll be really interesting to see whether some of the large service providers really ramp up um, their sanctions compliance after these uh, large enforcement actions. I think it's a message to the industry to take heed to, and not really just crypto currency, but really any sort of fintechs. We've seen, I think, a lot more increase in 2023 in actions against uh, fintechs or different payment service providers. And so I think that's something to watch out for as well. Yeah. And we'll also see, it's it's interesting because in getting ready for this podcast, I, I went to some of the websites for some of these companies. 
and just to kind of see where they were headquartered in the US. And one thing that happened very quickly was that when I went to just the general website, it told me I couldn't come onto that website and it funneled me onto a US based only website. Mm. And so we'll see if the next move for a lot of these companies is to kind of try and divide up into US where there is compliance and rest of the world. Yeah, I think we, we saw a little bit of that in the Binance action as well, um, you know, that, that they had tried uh, to uh, siphon off some of their um, business related to sanctioned countries to um, business lines in in different areas. So it'll be really interesting to see if that that happens um, going forward too. Well, with that, I think we've kind of run through our 2023 agenda. Any parting thoughts, Laura, for the for for how we make our way into 2024? You know, I think I'll be really, really eager to see what comes out of OFAC uh, next week. And I think every one of your listeners will as well. And hopefully we'll be able to chat about that. Um, I'm super excited to be talking about sanctions in Turkey. Um, so if we have any listeners in Turkey uh, and you um, are going to be at the Defend Tech Symposium, please feel free to come say hi to us. We love to talk uh, trade all day. Um, but uh, also happy to just um, catch up generally. Absolutely. would love to talk to folks in Turkey um, and all the other places that we're going to be over the next couple of weeks. So uh, with that, I'll just say, say stay sanctions free and we'll see you in Turkey or somewhere else soon. Produced by HeartCast Media.